Justin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 96. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Jai. And the two of us are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of July 1st through July 14th. Stella and Don are currently at Comic-Con in San Diego, and Stella will actually be joining us a little bit later in the podcast to cover all of the news out of Comic-Con. Also, as you're listening to this, The Dark Knight Rises is in the theaters, so this is a pretty busy time for Batman fans. So with the two of us, this episode should be a little bit shorter than normal, but there is, as I said, a lot of news to cover even before Comic-Con, just because of all of the news that was released leading up to Comic-Con. So with that... We're going to get right into the news. All right, the very first thing we have on July 2nd, it was revealed on the source that the Joker is going to be actually the villain that's heading back to the Batman universe. This is obviously contrary to my assumption that it was going to be the Riddler, but then again, the Joker's not a bad substitute above the Riddler anyway. Yeah, definitely, and I think Donacella, they say they're at Comic-Con, I think they're just ashamed that they both thought it was the Riddler too, but I was a bit... Shocked, I guess, just because of what seems to be the storyline that's going to be happening in it. But definitely looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a definitely a really exciting arc. So probably even top the Night of the Owls. Yeah, the storyline is called Death of a Family, which you know plays off of uh, Death in the Family that happened back in the 80s with the death of Jason Todd. Scott Snyder has promised that this is going to be his you know ultimate Joker story. As he always promises every time he has a story, this is the best thing that he can write. So it probably will end up topping Night of Owls and Court of Owls, the whole Court of Owls storyline. But that's what we can expect come September. We we have more about that later on when we get to some of the interviews that Snyder did in relation to the announcement with Joker. But next up, also on July 2nd, the Harvey Award nominees were announced. There's a couple of nominees within the Batman universe. Best cover artist, Mark Simpson, also known as Jock, was nominated for Detective Comics. Best cover artist was also nominated was J.H. Williams III for Batwoman, and J.H. Williams III was also nominated for Best Artist in Batwoman. The awards will be announced at Baltimore Comic-Con on September 8th. Needless to say, congratulations go to the nominees. Well, I think it's all pretty obvious choices. I mean, those are some spectacular covers for Detective Comics, and then J.H. Williams, that kind of goes without saying. Alright, so July 3rd, the source made another announcement that coming in October, Wonder Woman will be appearing in Batwoman. The story will be written by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman, with art and cover by Williams. And then it was actually revealed later on um, during Comic-Con that she's not going to be in just one issue, she's going to be in, I believe, two issues. We'll obviously cover that a little bit more later on, but Wonder Woman and Batwoman, you know, you have the iconic female character within the DC Universe making her way to the you know, main iconic Batwoman character. I say that in not as Batwoman, but as a Batwoman character. Because obviously there's Batgirl, but Batwoman is definitely iconic in her own right. Yeah, I haven't had 
really any exposure to Wonder Woman in the comics other than some of the crisis stuff, so I'm looking forward to this. All right, so then July 3rd, there was a bunch of interviews that were done. We did an interview roundup with all the interviews that were done with Jeff Johns about the release of Batman Earth 1. I'm not going to cover those, but you can definitely check out the roundup on the website. A number of different media sites interviewed him and talked about the release of Batman Earth 1, which came out on July 4th and is actually also in bookstores now if you haven't picked it up. Moving on, July 5th, there was the new Detective Comics creative team was announced by The Source, and it will be none other than John Lehman, who's best known for his successful series called Chew, and Jason Fabic will be also heading to the title as the artist. The first story arc that they're promising is dealing with the Penguin, but another thing that was revealed at Comic-Con by Layman himself is that they're actually planning on doing one-off issues that just work together, but the issues can be read by themselves individually. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I haven't read much of Layman's work, but what I have read in the two series I've really enjoyed. Jason Faybook, we were saying how much we enjoyed his work on the annual. I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And I think we even said that we'd like to see him get some work in the Batman universe. So really great to see that. And just even the way the stories are seeming to be written with this kind of one-off issue, but with a greater story arc in mind. I'm not sure how long it will stay the case because we've heard that sort of thing before. But it's definitely the way that I like to read comics, especially with so many ongoing arcs. It would be nice to have kind of one-off issues. So I'm really looking forward to this. All right. Also on July 5th, it was announced by the source that Batgirl will have her first annual that will be released in the month of October. That's not really that big of a surprise as it seems as if all of the main Batman series, at least the ones that are having on the sales ranks, are above 25 or 30. They'll probably all be getting an annual eventually. Moving right along, July 6th, the source announced that current Green Arrow scribe Anosenti will be taking over writing duties on Catwoman beginning in September with the Zero issue. Comic Book Resources, Newsarama, Comic Vine, and iFanboy all posted interviews with Anosetti. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to read through some of the highlights of all of these interviews. There was a lot of things that happened. A lot of it was repeats, depending on the location. But here are some of the highlights from all of the interviews. So I will read for the media source, and Joe will read for Anosenti. Is your story going to be a clean start, or are you going to be building or continuing anything that was established in Judd Winnick's time on the book? Well, I think I'm going to do a clean break, do some new stories, and then go back and look at what was established in the first 12 issues. It's almost like if you want to bring something back that's been in the story, you want to have a new angle on it. You want to have an interesting twist on it. Actually, to a certain degree, there's not a lot of threads dangling, you know? She has this wonderful friend Lola, but now she's dead. And she has this relationship with the car thief, but then he turned on her. So there's like a beginning, middle, and an end to those storylines. So you don't really want to rush into pulling something out of there until the time feels right. Will she be operating in Gotham, and how much of a role will the setting play in Gotham? I was influenced in this by my editor, Rachel, who said, Why not start making her a little more jet-setting? So she's in Gotham, but basically, inspired by something Rachel said, I'm going to start shooting her around the world a little bit. Sexy climates. Not necessarily danger climates, but sexy climates, like in the South. Alright, so then she also went on to say both Comic Resources and Newsarama asked who the artist was that she would be teaming with. She 
basically said she has no idea who she's teaming with. And interestingly enough, Gilliam March, who's on the book right now, he is actually going to be drawing Talon, so it's very unlikely that he'll be drawing Catwoman as well as Talon at the same time. So as of this interview, it was unknown exactly who the artist was going to be. Yeah, this actually came as a bit of a surprise to me because I didn't realize Judd Winnick had any intention of leaving the book, but I don't read Rena now. I know you do, don't you, Dustin? Yes. Is Anna Senti, do you think she's going to bring something good to... Anna Senti took over for JT Cruel on Green Arrow. I think it was, I want to say it was like issue three or four. And she definitely gave the character a little bit more than what we were seeing before. I think she has the capabilities of doing a really good job. The fact that she's a woman... I would hope, would mean that there would be a little bit less of the over-sexualization in the book, but then again, based off of some comments that were given at Comic-Con, I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. Yeah, well, we get the, the teaser image by Andy Clark. I doubt he'll be the artist on the book, but that was definitely a cool image, so I'm looking forward to seeing where this series goes. It's been a bit of a disappointment so far, so hopefully this will pick it up. Alright, so then, also on July 6th, over at Comic Book Resources, John Lehman, the newly announced writer on Detective Comics, talked about what his plans are for Detective Comics. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for John Lehman. The teaser cover by Jason Fabick features Penguin more prominently than Batman. Certainly a part of your Batman's appeal is his stellar rogues gallery. Will Penguin and the rest of the rogues play a major role in your run? Absolutely. I'm trying to do this like Chew, in that every issue will be a case, or its own self-contained adventure. I'm not a huge fan of decompressed storytelling, where you spend three or four bucks and you get one scene of one guy doing one thing. I'm going to try and satisfy everyone, every issue, while leading to a bigger story. I'm doing that with Mars Attacks, and I'm doing that with Chew. That's how I think comics give you the most satisfying experience for the non-trade waiters. As for the rogues, my first pitch had all the villain stuff, and they were like, where's Batman in this story? Instinctively, I do think about the villains first. The name of the first arc, or at least the name of the arc that I'm doing because you never know how long these things will last, is called Emperor Penguin. But I don't want to go into details, because it's one of those things where Scott Snyder certainly didn't explain the Court of Owls right out of the gate. The story is not going to become apparent initially, so I don't want to spoil it other than it's called Emperor Penguin. Alright, so that's that interview. So essentially... We know Penguin will be in the, the first issue uh, as far as how many issues or how long it'll last. It's unknown because, as he said, he wants each issue to be self-contained, which, like like Joe said earlier, that, that definitely is a good thing, especially for those out there who have been tired of the, you know, 11-issue story arcs, as, such as what we're finding in Batman and even some of the uh, longer story arcs that are happening in, like, Nightwing and Batgirl and things like that. I mean, we still don't have a whole lot of answers about Batgirl, and it's been 11 issues at this point. So needless to say, it'll be a nice change of venue. Yeah, this just reinforces what I feel about that style of storytelling, and I also think it's kind of funny that Penguin's going to be the first villain. It, <laughs> I know Don's been a bit perturbed by that recently, so hopefully we'll see a new take on it, or at least a consistent one, I guess. But it's going to be interesting to see Layman's take on him. All right, so then moving right along, July 9th, Scott Snyder talked with a number of media sources, including USA Today, The Huffington Post, MTV Geek, IGN, Crave Online, Comic Resources, Comic Vine, Newsarama, and iFanboy. Out of all of these, we picked out some of the best things to reference to, and 
I will read for the media source, and Joe will read for Scott Snyder. On the two big Batman stories you've done so far, the first one in Detective Comics and, of course, The Court of Owls, you've been shooing the big Batman villains. I think most writers, when they get a chance to tackle Batman, start running down the checklist of villains, but you didn't do that. So what changed, and why was it important to tackle the Joker now? That's a great question. It's the thrill of a lifetime to get to use the Joker. I used him a touch in Detective Comics, and it was incredibly exciting. It made me want to use him again, immediately. What happened was, with the New 52, DC wanted to move some of the bigger villains off the table a bit to make room for the new villains that people were excited about. It became more of a process of figuring out when I could begin to do the story I had been thinking about for him and Bruce, and bringing him back. They asked if Tony would take him off the table in Detective, and he had a few different ways of doing that. So he landed on this one that would tail into my story. Tony really liked that. That face coming off ending. And I knew that would work okay for me. He did that, and all credit to him creatively for that. But it definitely dovetails into the story I wanted to tell. And my feeling was, we haven't had a Joker versus Bruce story in a really long time. You've seen him pitted against him in No Man's Land, and stuff like that. But that was so long ago. He faced off with Dick and Damien in Batman and Robin. And he played a part in Batman R.I.P., but still, as a central villain, as the guy that Bruce is fighting, not some peripheral or secondary, those stories don't come along very often. If we're going to use him, we might as well use him as if we're never going to use him again. So this is really my giant, twisted love letter or exploration of the Joker, in the central, deep, dark way we could do it. This is my Joker story, to end all my Joker stories. One of the more confusing things about the New 52 relaunch has been trying to figure out what is still in canon and what isn't. They've often said that the killing joke still happened, but did it all of it happen? Is that definitive origin story of the Joker, or are you planning to make some changes to it as you did recently with Mr. Freeze? That's not really my part of the story at all. We're not going to re-explore his origin in this story. I love the killing joke. It's my favorite Batman story of all time, and you'll see an homage to it in this one. But in terms of going back and trying to redefine who the Joker was beforehand, this story isn't that. You've mentioned the Joker having an axe to grind with the extended Bat family. Dick Grayson had a prominent role in the Court of Owls storyline this past year. What other characters can we expect to see spotlight in this next arc? In Batman you'll see, basically, the extended Bat family in terms of Damien and Dick, and Tim will actually play a role in it. Barbara, Jason... So you will see a lot of main Batman family characters in Batman. But one of the things we're really excited to announce today is that Batman will be 1,000% self-contained. You will not need to read anything else to get the full story that I'm planning for Joker here. But because the Joker does have an axe to grind with those characters, and part of his plan is tearing them to shreds, he will appear in a number of those books after the story gets going in Batman. Those stories will be self-contained also, so you'll be able to pick them up and read them and see the storylines continue in those books you've been reading. In some cases, they will feature things the Joker has been planning for a long time, while some will be more abrupt, where he destroys what's been going on. But the point, really, is that the Joker has been watching Batman and the family for the full year he's been away, and he's been setting his traps and sharpening his cleaver and waiting to spring those traps. Now, Halloween, a year later, he's ready. How long are you planning the Batman story arc to be? In Batman, it's going to be from issue 13 to number 17. But 17 is going to be a giant issue, like an annual-sized issue. And plus, it's also going to be in the backups of Batman. So it's going to be probably the equivalent, I would think, of about seven issues, but it will be in those five. All right, so five-issue story arc for the Joker. 
What's interesting is five issues brings us to February, so then the question is what happens after February? And I know that seems like a long ways away, but we'll be hearing about February in only a matter of a couple months. I think it'll be interesting. I'm sure, even though he made a point to say it'll be 1,000% self-contained, Court of Owls was pretty self-contained, and when they did do the Night of Owls crossover, it really just played into what was happening in the other books, some of them more so than others. I know that DC is really trying to push, hey, we might be doing a crossover, but we're not going to make you buy every single book, which is great, I guess. I, I mean, I'm buying all the books anyway, so it really doesn't make a difference to me. But it's nice for those people who don't want to spend, you know, 50 bucks a month on books just to keep track of everything that's going on in the crossover. Yeah, I think DC's probably doing the right thing there, but having an, an annual size issue for the final issue is obviously going to be extra priced, which so they're still uh, getting more money out of us, but hopefully it will be worth it. I'm sure it will. I remember being really excited about the Joker losing his face in that detective storyline. I didn't realize that it was going to be just to take him off the plate and not use him, and that's probably why we've been missing him for so long and wondering what happened with that storyline. I think the first time I heard about the Joker being used, I was a bit... I wasn't skeptical. I just thought I was being a little bit disappointed the Night of Owls storyline, especially towards the beginning. But then thinking about it and thinking about the Joker in the detective comics that Scott Snyder wrote and how brilliant that was, and thinking about what I thought the storyline is going to be, it really got me excited. But having seen the teaser image, it's not exactly what I thought was going to happen. I thought the whole point was that the Joker could now come back and he could be anyone, because the whole point about the Joker is he doesn't have a costume. He's recognisable because of the way he looks, because of his face, and without that, he could be anyone. And I thought that's a really interesting concept, but in all the teaser images we've seen, he just seems to be wearing his face. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to be on, but then, you know, covers are rarely what's actually in the issue. So I'm definitely looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a spectacular arc. So really excited for this. Yeah, I'd have to say it is kind of interesting because I agree with you. I thought the whole point of cutting off his face was so that he could be somebody different and not you know, having to walk around with the white face with the giant red grin. But we'll just have to wait and see. Also on July 9th, DC released their solicitations for October. And to run through some of the highlights of the solicitations, the first issue of Talon hits, even though Talon number zero is really the first issue that hits in September. In Batman Incorporated, we see the return of the future world where Damien is Batman and this takes place in the distant future similar to what we saw in Batman number 666, also by Grant Morrison, many, many years ago. As far as some of the other things that we'll see, the Batgirl annual is coming out. Batgirl number 13 sees an artist change with Ed Bennis taking over. He's actually going to be the, the future ongoing artist for that series. The Batgirl annual and the Batgirl book both deal with the talent that Batgirl faced which is kind of interesting that they're bringing her back. I thought all the talons were frozen inside of a locker beneath Blackgate Penitentiary, but I guess not. Some of the other changes, Birds of Prey, The Arts by Romano Molinar, I think that's how you say it, instead of Trevor Foreman. The art in Catwoman is done by Adriana Mello and Julio Fiera. And Red Hood and the Outlaws, the art's done by Timothy Green II. Nightwing number 13 is actually bringing Lady Shiva into the New 52. It's actually going to be written by Tom DeFalco. Tom DeFalco will be taking on Nightwing for two issues. 
Um, as far as the digital releases, we'll see the first print copy of Legends of the Dark Knight, another copy of Batman Arkham Unhinged, Batman Beyond Unlimited number 9, and then some of the other books that will be featuring Batman Universe characters, World's Finest number 5, Swamp Thing number 13 features Poison Ivy, All-Star Western number 13 features Haley's Circus, Teen Titans features something having to do with Tim Drake, but they're very vague on what is actually going to happen. Smallville Season 11 sees the print copy of number 6. We'll be showing Batman appearing in Smallville, or Superman coming across Batman, I should say. And then we'll also see Young Justice, and specifically for Halloween, we're going to see a Batman Scooby-Doo Halloween Fest number 1, which is really a combination of two different books that have already been done. It's the combination of Batman Adventures number 1 and number 4, and Scooby-Doo Where Are You number 2. This is actually going to be free. It'll be 24 pages and available at comic shops. This is specifically meant to get children more involved in in comic books by offering a free comic book to give the weed to kids. So solicitations, lots of stuff going on. Yeah, a lot of stuff. I guess I'm looking forward to seeing Ed Bennis in the book. I enjoyed the stuff in Detective, although I know a lot of people think he's a bit cheesecakey. So maybe Batgirl wasn't the best book to put him on, but... He's definitely more consistent than the art we've seen in there so far, and then Batman Income, obviously, really excited for, and lots of things in there, and, you know, it's good. It's lots of good stuff ahead in the Batman universe. All right, so moving right along, July 11th, we have two interviews. The first one is Judd Winnick talked about Batwing number zero with Comic Book Resources. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for Judd Winnick. We've already seen a lot of David's past as a child soldier in Batwing. How does your number zero fit into the origin story mold? It's sort of the opposite of what we've had with the zero issue of Green Arrow. For the first eight issues and change on Batwing, we told his origin and a lot of it. We know he was a boy soldier, how he basically rescued himself from being a boy soldier and then seeking help and going to the child rescue compound where he was raised. So that piece of the puzzle is there. After that, the missing pieces are, although we saw him running around as a vigilante a little bit, how does he go from being a boy who was a boy soldier to being a vigilante and then in Batman Incorporated? So we're kind of going from the opposite direction than Green Arrow. This is very similar in tone. This is a very similar character who we've seen on this road of being this vigilante in Africa, but not how it happened. Like Green Arrow, this is about a catalyst moment where he went from being a boy soldier to where we pick up and he's a cop, a police officer in Tanasha which is the way he thought he wanted to give back for all the wrongs he had done as a boy soldier. But it's not working because the police force in Tanasha is pretty new as they're post-revolution and they are very corrupt. They take bribes and it's accepted, but that's not working for him. Tragic things happen because he is a Batman which has him decide to become a vigilante, to make a difference, in a different way. And then comes Batman and Batman Incorporated and it's about him becoming a vigilante for the first time. This is the missing chapter. This is what got him from here to there. While we will see the filling in of David's life between soldier and vigilante, will we see any of Matu's role in David's pre-life vigilante? Yes. Matu is very much a part of it. He was basically the one who raised him since he came to the child rescue center, and is part of this catalyst moment. He's been right there since the beginning. Alright, so that's the end of the interview. This is a little bit odd that he said this specifically, because I could have swore the zero-issue solicitation or maybe something else that was said was that because Batwing, you know, covered so much of David's origin as, you know, his origin from when he was a boy to now, 
I thought the whole point was to show how he became a member of Batman Incorporated. Nothing about filling in the blanks between him as a boy soldier and him as a vigilante. So to me, that it's kind of odd, and honestly, I don't really think I want to see more of David's life between the time he was a boy soldier and the time he became a vigilante. I'd rather just see how he became a member of Batman Incorporated, or even, you know, incorporating Justice League International into the mix or something like that. Well, I think they're both important stories to tell, but I agree that I think we've seen enough of his early life, for the moment at least, so that we could focus on the Batman Incorporated stuff, or like you said, maybe the Justice League International stuff, because that's, you know, completely different to what we've seen in the book so far. But I, I think that looking back on that in the future would definitely be a good move as well. All right, so then the other interview that came up on July 11th was an interview with Gil Simone. This one was done at Newsarama, and it was basically talking about the Joker appearing in Batgirl, you know, moving forward, having to do with the death of the family crossover with Batman. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama, and Joe will read for Gail Simone. Her emotions over the events of The Killing Joke still don't feel completely resolved, because she hasn't had to deal with the Joker again. Since we've heard about the return of the Joker in Death of the Family in the Batman title, and DC has implied it will touch other members of the Batman family, will Barbara be confronted more directly by the villain in your title? Resolved is kind of a tough word here. There's definitely a feeling out there regarding this stuff that someone is fixed or not fixed, like an on-off switch. It's not that binary, but she's facing this stuff head-on, and I'm pretty sure a Joker-Batgirl story is inevitable. But I can't say more than that. Think of two trains on the same track facing towards each other. There's nowhere for either of them to go but towards collision. And that collision occurs in your Death of the Family tie-in to Scott's Batman story? Yes. It is the once-and-for-all confrontation between the Batgirl and the man who shot and paralyzed her. It does not go as he expected. This story starts in issue 14, and I have to say, it's pretty shocking. That's all I'll say right now, however. We've seen the solicitation for Batgirl number zero, and it appears that you'll be revealing more about Batgirl's time between her attack by the Joker and her surgery. Can you describe the issue and what we'll learn about Batgirl? Batgirl number zero is actually not about that. It's about before that, a story that hasn't been told. I'm excited about it, and it looks amazing, with art by Ed Bennis, doing some of his most emotional work ever. I loathe to give too much away, but this is about Barbara's choice to become Batgirl. Alright, so I'm not real sure exactly what the thought process was when she did this interview. Because she said, I'm pretty sure that a Joker-Batgirl story is inevitable, but I can't say more than that. Then the next question is asked, and she says, oh yeah, well the Joker-Batgirl story is going to start in issue 14. Really? (laughs) Okay. And then regarding the Batgirl Zero issue, of all the possible things to talk about as far as the questions that we could answer about Batgirl. Why in the world would we want to know why Barbara Gordon chose to be Batgirl instead of the reason of how she got to be able to walk again? I I just don't get it. I guess they're just really trying to keep the secrets hidden for a lot longer than a year. Oh, I'm sure Stella will be upset to know that Simone is going to try and rewrite Batgirl year one. Batgirl's one of those characters which I don't fully know the history of, but it seems here that she's never met the Joker when I'm sure that she has. Perhaps they're saying as Batgirl, because I know it was during Birds of Prey and when she was Oracle that she sat to fight the Joker before, is that right? Yes. Admittedly, that was before the New 52, and like I said, maybe they're just saying this is Batgirl, not Oracle. But at the same time, when she was shot by the Joker, she wasn't Batgirl, she was Barbara Gordon. And 
I don't understand. Is Joker supposed to know that she's Barbara Gordon? Or does he ever find out that the person he's shot is not only the police commissioner's daughter, but also Batgirl? Or is that... As far as I know, Joker never knew that. So, I mean, if he figured that out at some points, it's, it's news to me. I really doubt that that's the case, but at the same time, I really have to wonder to myself, so the Joker goes after Batgirl because she's Batgirl, because she's part of the Bat family. That's fine. But I think Batgirl would be way too emotional, you know, in, in relation to fighting the Joker for the Joker not to try to figure something out, which in turn could just give up everything. Yeah. But then I guess at the same time, with that line by Gail Simone, it does not go as he expected. Perhaps that's when, because of her emotional reaction to him as the person who shot her, perhaps that's where that surprise comes from. But I guess it's going to be interesting just to see the history and who knows what and how things go together. But again, there's more continuity in history issues with Batgirl. Yeah. All right, so that is all the news. We are going to get Stella on the line. As I said, Comic-Con is in its final hours. All of the panels have happened. And Stella, Don, and Josh were all at Comic-Con reporting news for the Batman universe. So Stella's going to join us and talk about the news that came from Comic-Con. So Stella, how's Comic-Con been? How has it been? It's been fun. I think it's always going to be fun, but this year seemed more stressful than last year. And overall, it seemed like the creators of DC and the other company we won't mention really were not giving out much information. They were really, what they were giving out was information we had already known through solicitations. So other panels were worthwhile going to in other interest areas, but DC and Marvel, it just seemed like, wow, what, what are you guys doing? Why are you just giving us this sort of information? But otherwise, I mean, the culture of the, the Comic-Con is just great. It's great to see these cosplayers and really great costumes and different costumes. We did see the two doctors from Jurassic Park. I think that was the most interesting cosplay couple there. And just getting to walk around, see different booths, talk to different people, and, and being with Josh and Don was great. All right, so we'll go over all of the comic panels. Like Stella said, Comic-Con is, even though it's Comic-Con, it has become less and less about the actual comics, and it seems as if DC and Marvel are always doing their best to release news leading up to the convention than compared to the at the actual convention. On a side note, there was two big announcements from DC that were announced at Comic-Con. The first being that over on the Vertigo side of the world of DC, Neil Gaiman is returning to do a Sandman miniseries with J.H. Williams III doing the art. No idea how that's going to affect Batwoman, but that's happening. And then the other big announcement from DC that happened was that the upcoming Quentin Tarantino movie, Django Unchained, uh, is going to be, I guess, translated into a comic book slash miniseries that's going to be released leading up to the release of the film that'll actually be, they said, will be a direct interpretation from the script of the original movie. So that'll be interesting to see, too. But that has nothing to do with Batman, so let's get into the panels for Batman. On July 12th, the very first panel that we covered was DC Comics' Batman Beyond the Night Vowels, which dealt with specifically the Bat books. So the highlights out of this one were Nightwing number 0 will focus on how Dick Grayson became Robin, Nightwing number 13-14 will be written by Tom DeFalco and introduce Lady Shiva into the New 52. Nightwing number 15 and 16 will feature Joker tie-in issues with Higgins returning to write. Ed Bennis will become the regular artist 
on Batgirl, starting with issue number 13, which is odd because that's contrary to what we just said in an interview with Gail Simone where she said Bendis was doing the art for issue zero. Batwoman number zero will focus on Kate's father and his history on learning of Batwoman. Batman Incorporated number zero will focus on the creation of the team instead of the individual characters. John Lehman stated that despite the first story arc in his detective run is entitled Emperor Penguin, he promised it isn't the Penguin story that you're expecting by using one-off issues as their ongoing format. Kenneth Rockford designed a new costume of Dick Grayson's Robin for Dick Grayson's Robin for Nightwing number zero, and a question was asked about the second volume of Widening Gear, which was answered with, we are not ready to publish it yet. Yeah, the Batman panel, they were so sort of tight-lipped about it. The majority of issues we sort of already knew were coming out. And I think if last year Jeff Johns was the big guy at all the DC panels, just all the the majority of information coming from him because he had all the connection with Justice League, I think that Scott Snyder was the big guy this year, just with all the Batman things and a lot of stories sort of connecting to him. And it seems like he really is the big man on campus. That girl, Gil Simone, she dances around all sorts of information, but anything she says just is like an enigma. You have no idea what she's saying because she's not really saying anything. There's, she just does not divulge any information. But the majority of this, I think, was things that we had already learned. All right. The next panel, also on July 12th, was DC Entertainment All Access DC Now. As far as news related to the Batman universe, All-Star Western will feature the citizens of Gotham being infected with something that drives them crazy in an upcoming issue. Poison Ivy will be appearing in Swamp Thing as a warrior for the green against the rot. Red Hood will appear in Hawkman later this year. And Supergirl and Raven will be joining the Teen Titans. Not a whole lot of news out of that panel. No, I could at least expand. They were calling this formula that's going to go on in All-Star Western this Jekyll and Hyde formula, that that is sort of what's coming into Gotham. And I know issue zero, uh, I can't remember what goes on there, but 13 is like this crazy cover with Jonah fighting this bozo the clown kind of guy, and so he's going to the circus, which is really interesting. And The Rot, this huge sort of crossover, well, I guess it's not a huge crossover, but Snyder says he has Swamp Thing, it'll be tying into Animal Man, and then it'll sort of be going into Birds of Prey as well, it seems, with this Rot storyline. And just listening to him talk and how excited he was, especially with some of these Issue Zeros with Swamp Thing and this Rot storyline, it gets me excited, and I think that's something to really look forward to. And I'm interested to see how the Birds of Prey will play a part in that particular storyline. Oh, but yeah. the Supergirl thing is kind of weird because, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off, but because I don't know if it's just Lobdell joking around, but when he asked Mike Johnson about bringing Supergirl onto the team, Mike Johnson said, maybe. Like, it wasn't a for sure thing, but those solicitations make it seem like it is. But it was hard to take whatever was going on between Lobdell and anyone seriously. Sorry to cut you off, Kira. I guess the news out of that pal that I'm most excited about is Poison Ivy in Swamp Thing because we sort of saw a hint of it, I guess, in the last Birds of Prey and I've been reading Swamp Thing and Owlman and it's just more of DC's kind of cross-pollination between the series and relating things to things even thematically. Just It really works and I'm glad to see that. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, so moving on to July 13th, the first panel was DC Comics the New 52. As far as the news, Snyder compared the upcoming Talon series to the Da Vinci Code. 
A question was asked about the recent rumor about Stephanie Brown being replaced by Barbara Gordon in the Smallville Season 11 series, to which no one had an answer for to give, and someone admitted they had never heard the rumor. Another fan asked about Stephanie showing up in the New 52. Simone answered she had no plans for the character in Batgirl. Snyder said they were still trying to find a way to bring Steph and Cassandra Kane into the fold, which is the same thing he says at every single convention. Exactly. Yeah, this panel was frustrating just because it was a rehashing of all the other panels that we had heard before. It was interesting to get Snyder's perspective on the town because DC, I guess, just really wanted to milk this Night of the Owls thing, and he just, you know, I really respect the man because he said, you know, I just don't think I can take it anywhere, so, you know, I'm not just going to push out a book because you want to make money. But, you know, he has this young man that he had taught, and, and he seems really proud of where the book is, and of course he's sort of taken him under his wing. It sort of seems like a Brubaker fraction kind of thing where they're working together, and I think that his student will probably take over 100%. But I think just hearing how excited he is and, and that he gave it high praise sounds good. The Stephanie Brown, and you know, the woman asking the question is the Stephanie Brown background that really causes her last year. And she started this with this line of questioning with the DC Superman panel. Brian T. Miller was originally supposed to be on that panel, but was not there, but that no one knew about that. And then I guess she asked it here and she'll ask it somewhere else again and we'll find out what the answer was there. Well, real quick, just tell everybody what the rumor is that popped up right before the convention started. Yeah, so I got, you know, one of these strange texts and it said the rumor was that Stephanie Brown was being taken off of the Smallville season 11. If you guys remember the solicitations or at least art showed that Batman was going to be coming to that book, and then he'd have Nightwing, and Nightwing was going to be Stephanie Brown. So the rumor was that Stephanie Brown was going to be dropped and replaced with Barbara Gordon, and the dialogue obviously would change. That was the rumor. All right, so then moving on to July 14th, the first panel was DC, the new wave, and the news from this one was the Talon series will dive into more of Gotham City's history. James Tinian stated that Batman and Nightwing will most likely appear in the new series, Talon, within the first year of the book. James Gordon Jr. will be fleshed out post-New 52 in Gail Simone's Batgirl. Justice League International won't be appearing anytime soon, but Batwing will be. I assume so, since he still has his own series. Tim Drake will be appearing a lot more in Gotham and in the upcoming Joker crossover. And finally, Dan DiDio confirmed that Stephanie Brown will not be in Smallville Season 11, and was quoted, If we're going to introduce a character into the Smallville world, I want them to be the most iconic versions, like Barbara Gordon or Dick Grayson. And maybe down the road, we can do more. I'm just going to say one thing real quick. Real quick, related to this. Because, honestly, there's some other news that we'll get to that, you know, piss some more people off. This is probably the news that pissed me off the most. And the reason being is, back in May, when it was first announced that Stephanie Brown was going to appear in Smallville, DC toted the crap out of it. So did Warner Brothers. Because Warner Brothers is the parent company of DC. Well, guess what Warner Brothers owns? TV Guide. And guess who put out the article about Stephanie Brown appearing in Smallville Season 11? TV Guide. And the fact that they toted it as, hey, guess what? This is the return of Stephanie Brown. She's going to be back, and she's going to be Nightwing. And then not only did... TV Guide reported, but it was also in various other interviews, including on comic book resources. And guess what? I hate to say it, but I don't think Brian K. Miller ran to TV Guide to give them some kind of exclusive without somebody at Warner Brothers or DC knowing about it. Same thing with comic book resources. Which means they toted it, 
as this is the return of Stephanie Brown in this alternate universe that's not really within DC continuity, and really went with it. And then two months later, I guess Dan DiDio finally got around to reading some of his notes or some of his emails from two months ago, and decided, you know what, hey, this isn't going to happen. We're not doing this. No way. No way we're going to do this. So you know what, to me, I say to that, DC dropped the ball yet again with the character Stephanie Brown. Yeah, I just think it's, my gosh, it, it just looks so awful to have all of that out there, all of that news, and then to double back and do that. And I think that just makes them look horrible. And, yeah, I can personally attest that you can't have an interview now with creators without going through somebody because now I'm encountering red tape to, you know, interview different people. So there's no way that Brian Q. Miller went out without, you know, there being permission and, and talk to them. But it really does stink for the fans. And, you know, I haven't encountered this much emotion, I think, since, well, I, I don't know if, if ever with this particular character. And now I know what the Cass Kane fans feel like because, gee, you, you feel like she's going to come back and then she's not. And it's just, it's it's upsetting for the fans and the character. And it just looks really bad on DC to have information put out there and then have it redacted, basically. I guess how I feel about this is, I mean, it's a shame that there isn't going to be Steph, and it's definitely bad publicity for DC, and they really messed up with this. But in reality, I, I was never going to read the Smallville series, so I don't feel that I've lost Stephanie Brown, but obviously there are lots of fans out there who would pick it up dust for Stephanie Brown, so it's definitely a mess up and unfortunate one, is that? Yeah, and the woman who dresses up as Stephanie Brown, Kyrax, I mean, she even said, you know, once I found out about Stephanie Brown, I started purchasing the back issues and everything and then going forward. So I think they probably did gain new fans just for this particular storyline or to see Stephanie Brown again. So that's unfortunate. I guess before we go on, there was something I forgot to mention about one of the previous panels. Curiously absent in the Batman panel, they did not talk about Batwing. And they did not talk about Batman and Robin. And, of course, we've already, you know, discussed the thought that Batwing is probably going to be canceled. So I guess that's understandable. But Don and I were very curious as to why there was no Batman and Robin being mentioned because we thought, hey, this is like a top-tier book and it's, it's doing well. So after one of the, the DC panels, I believe on this day, we went and we talked to Bobby Chase and we asked, you know, Batwing and Batman and Robin, are they getting an issue, you know, number zero? Are they going to be continuing? And she did say that, yes, they're both getting number zeros. And, you know, she didn't say anything about continuing, sort of, but it seemed, you know, likely that Batman and Robin would continue. All right, so then the next panel, also on July 14th, was the DC Comics All-Access OGNs, which is the original graphic novels. The news for this was Batman Earth 1 Volume 2 is already in the works, and Jeff Johns is hoping to have the book released before the end of 2013. The graphic novel will feature the Riddler as the main villain. It will also feature showing how Batman becomes a great detective. Johns hopes that the story will be the killing joke for the Riddler. Johns has also described the Riddler similar to the Zodiac Killer or a character in a David Fincher film. And the two Earth-1 novels exist in the same universe. That would be Superman Earth-1 and Batman Earth-1. And JMS actually stated that there will be hints about Batman in the second volume of Superman Earth-1. I'm sure Batman's not going to make an appearance, but probably like, hey, did you hear about this guy in Gotham or something like that? Yeah, the Superman Earth-1 looked really intriguing. We saw a lot of that in the 
Well, I went to the DC Superman panel just for kicks and giggles, and they showed a lot of art, and the main antagonist in that is Parasite, and that was interesting to see a lot of that art and to hear about that. Yeah, I think one of the big things that had come out for this particular Comic-Con was the fact that Earth-1 Batman was out, and they were really pimping that, and John seemed really excited with it. But not much, I think, besides the Riddler was revealed, you know, for this graphic novel. So I think it's already hit the New York Times bestsellers, so I think hopefully it'll be a good run. I saw some hints of Barbara in the end and Harvey Bullock, you know, throwing his eye at her. But I've yet to read it, but I am interested to see what it's like. All right. So then moving into Sunday, the first panel was DC Comics Young Justice. And this had a lot to do with the younger characters within the DC Universe, including Teen Titans. So as far as news, Teen Titans' number zero story focuses the majority of the issue on Tim Drake. Tim's origin has changed, and he has never actually been Robin. He has only ever been Red Robin. Jason is going to be involved with the Joker crossover, Jason Todd, that is, and so Red Hood and the Outlaws will focus on the other characters in the title, which means we may be putting Red Hood and the Outlaws on hiatus on the Batman Universe Atomic Podcast, which I'm sure a lot of people may be happy about. Oh, boy. (laughs) Red Hood will be getting a new costume in the near future, and Tim Drake came up with the name Teen Titans from a comic book he read as a kid. Yeah, so basically, poor Donovan was, he was very morose after all of this news came out, and I think he knows what Stephanie Brown fans feel like, and this is the second hit to poor Donovan because of Cassandra Kane basically not existing. Yeah, the big thing, Tim Drake not being Robin, and even a fan, one of the fan questions was, can you explain that a bit more, because... There was the image of him in his Robin costume in Teen Titans 1. You've got Damien, you know, going on his war against the, guess what, the Robins in Batman and Robin. So what was that about? Poor Donovan. I just feel bad for him that, you know, Tim Drake, a really big part of his past is is erased. And I think that a lot of people think that Tim Drake is sort of the iconic Robin. So it'll be interesting to see what his history is like, I guess. I'll just be interested to read Teen Titans number zero, which maybe that's why they did it all in the first place. Well, that definitely comes as a shock. I mean, there have been a lot of questions, I guess, about Tim Drake and his role as Robin and in the Batman universe. But I definitely wasn't expecting that. Definitely comes as a bit of a hit. I guess more so than quite a lot of the news that has come out since New 52 and stuff, so that's definitely a bit of a disappointment, but I don't know. (laughs) Alright, and then the final panel of the convention as far as comics go was the DC Entertainment Meet the Publishers panel, and the only highlight we have is that there was a fan who actually asked how is it possible that Tim Drake was never Robin, to which Dio stated that the reason why Tim Drake never took the Robin name was out of respect for Jason Todd. And out of every single time you've ever seen Tim Drake, he's always been Red Robin. He's just been Red Robin, not Robin. So his name has always been Red Robin. And it was basically just because it was to honor Jason Todd as the fallen Robin. Yeah, just hearing the phrase, in respect to Jason Todd, it seems like a total BS answer. I don't know. I think that this is just like, whew, a really quick change. And so they had to think on their feet and figure out, hey, why was he called Robin? Because, yeah, there is that image of him in his Robin costume in Sea Titans number one. Damien is setting out his war against the Robins. So it's there. And I think when they wrote that stuff, 
I'm pretty sure that he was Robin at the time, but for some reason, it's all of a sudden changed. And when the fan asked, Rob Dell was sort of, or this, you know, the perspective of Josh and Don, Rob Dell was just sort of like grasping for answers, like trying to come up with something on the fly. And of course, I mean, I don't know. It's just disappointing to say the least. I guess that explanation kind of makes sense, but it depends how genuine it is, I guess. Something I forgot to mention just for that last panel, I think it's interesting that Jason Todd is getting a new costume. You know, it's only just redone, but I guess that will tie into the book as it goes along. Well, I guess it makes sense. I haven't seen an image of the new costume, but the one that we've been reading now, he has this image of a bat, and he doesn't even want to be affiliated with Batman. He hates him. So, I mean, hopefully his new image goes along with what he's been saying all along. All right, so that wraps up everything from Comic-Con. Like Stella said in the very beginning, not a whole lot of new news. The Stephanie Brown and Tim Drake things were probably the biggest revelations, and I doubt that anybody actually wanted that to be announced at Comic-Con. But those were probably the two biggest things that were announced at Comic-Con because pretty much everything was announced before Comic-Con. Wonder Woman and Batwoman, Joker coming back to the Batman universe, you know, the giant Death of the Family crossover. All that stuff was announced before. All of the creator changes were announced earlier in the week, if not the week before. Contrary to pretty much everything that you would expect out of a convention, but this is kind of becoming a routine where DC is releasing all of the big stuff before the convention actually starts instead of using the convention as a platform to actually announce things. You know, they announced those two things that have nothing to do with the Batman universe with Sandman and Django Unchained, but that was essentially it. And Honestly, I just, I don't know why they, why they do that, why they take the time to announce those things, all these big things before the convention, other than just to, I guess, get people excited and maybe think about questions. But then again, there was plenty of DC panels where there was absolutely no time for a question and answer session because there was so much time spent on talking about the books that we already knew everything about. Yeah, just to comment on the Joker, I, I thought about this. The quote from Snyder was just Joker unhinged. And they are going to connect it to Detective because we've all wondered where his face was. And actually, like, he does. I guess there's a motive behind it all, connecting it back. And he does have his face on again, I assume. The image kind of that we were shown, you could tell that it, it was put back on and, and really messed up. And He's just going after every member of the Bat family, and he's really upset and feels forgotten and disrespected by Batman. And I'm interested to see how he goes after Barbara and whether she's going to be able to emotionally handle it. So, Stella, overall, what would you say the biggest highlight out of the convention was, regardless of whether it was comic book related or not? The biggest highlight. You know, sitting there, I went to a lot of panels, I think, that I would not normally have, like the toys and the collectibles and, well, DC Nation I probably still would have. And so that was interesting to get a different side of it. I actually really enjoyed the DC Nation panel. It's only, probably the top-notch thing was like a two-minute trailer of Young Justice and what was going to be coming up with that. But it was interesting also to learn about Beware the Batman, the different villains that they're going to be bringing in and sort of how they're switching it up. They're really throwing, I think, Batman on his head, kind of, you know, revitalizing him, giving him a new characterization. And not him, like, I don't want people to freak out and be like, oh my gosh, this is not going to be Batman. But, you know, Alfred, he's going to be a different person. I guess I won't reveal, you know, what's 
what's going on. I'll save that for another time. But, you know, Alfred is a different character, and Babs is actually going to be in the show, and hopefully you guys read what that's about. But I think that was that was just great to, to sit there and, and listen to that. All right, so for Stella and Don and Josh's full report of Comic-Con, be sure to check out the website for all of the news from Comic-Con in all of the areas. There's tons of merchandise news. There's TV news related to the TV shows. Lots of different things that were announced at Comic-Con outside of the comics. In addition to that, August Batman Universe podcast, Stella's going to be a guest on that show as well, and she's going to tell us more about DC Nation and some of the merchandise and things like that. So be sure to check out that podcast in a couple weeks for the full roundup of Comic-Con in general, and look forward to that. So Stella, be safe getting home, and we'll see you back at the comic podcast in about two weeks. Thanks again. Have a great night, Joe and Dustin. Bye. 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 All right, so that is all of our news. Lots of news, as I said, so let's get into our five books that we're going to be covering. And the very first book is Batwing number 11. Packs quite the punch for a toaster on steroids, huh? Need a hand? Batwing number 11, written by Judd Winnick, art by Marcus Toe. The issue starts off right where we left the last issue with Batwing fighting the Long, also known as Dragon, and Nightwing is up in the apartment fighting some random henchmen. They're basically just trying to stall so that their memory stick can get the internet traffic from Deng, and as soon as they get that, they have no intention of staying there any longer because as soon as that does happen, well, they decide to take off, and that's exactly what they do. So they take off and they leave the dragon to terrorize Beijing. Basically, at that point, Matt 2 reveals to Batwing that his entire family is dead, and that he has to bring his family back to their resting place at their ancestral home of Tundi. The problem is that Tundi is ruled by someone known as Lord Battle, which essentially, if you picture Hercules from the Marvel Universe, I don't even know how I know this, but it's essentially the same character, only he is black instead of white. As Batwing gets back to the Haven, he finds out from Mattu that Mattu has every intention of burying his family and going to Tundi to bury his family, and Lord Battle has no problem in letting Matt Two bring his family and bury him. Essentially, Matt Two has a hidden agenda, and meanwhile, Batwing and Nightwing are in Uzbekistan finding a group that are basically pretty good hackers, but not good enough for the two of them to figure it out. Back in Gotham City, Batman has transported some schematics for a device that was sold by someone in, in Gotham City. Turns out the Penguins sold plans to a nuke to somebody, and Batman wants to know exactly who it is. Back in Tundi, Matt 2 calls Batwing and says, listen, I've got a suspicion that there's something else going on in this country that nobody else knows about. I'm positive that they're drilling for oil. Batwing responds, well, that's impossible because they export diamonds and metals, and they don't have oil. And he said, well, that's odd because they're drilling, and then they showed the drilling towers. As that happens, Matu is shot by one of Lord Battle's henchmen, and Lord Battle picks up the phone and tells Batwing, I don't know who you are, but you're going to forget everything you said, and if you come in my land, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you. And Batwing says, well, that's going to be unfortunate, because that's exactly what I'm going to do, is head to your land. And that is where Batwing number 11 ends. Alright, Batwing number 11. I really don't know what to say. Quite honestly, this wasn't that interesting. 
part of the problem is I, I, I'm not really following this whole suddenly Matt Tu's entire family is murdered, and we know very little about Matt Tu to begin with, number one. Number two, it was like maybe a one or two pages in the last issue where some random guy in a, in a car you know, storms this party that Matu's family, who we don't know who they actually are, or it's not explained very well as who they actually are, and in turn, these people are all dead and he has to go bury them. Which introduces this brand new character, Lord Battle. Which, again, what does this have to do with Somali pirates? I... nothing. What does this have to do with the nuke that's the whole storyline with Batwing? Nothing. It really just seems as if this is an opportunity to create another storyline to coexist with everything that's happening with Batwing and Nightwing. Justice League International is promised to show up in the next issue. I am kind of looking forward to that because I read Justice League International as well, and it'll be interesting to see that. But, quite honestly, this really wasn't that great. Why do we have the Penguin showing up? I know I sound like Don when I say that, but why is the Penguin showing up in this book since he's already showing up in so many other books? In addition to that, why is it that we still have to have Batman and Nightwing and even Penguin, all characters from the Batman universe, show up in this book just to make the story float better? I just don't get it. Two out of five bad ranks. I think that Judd Winnick is definitely living up to his word of saying that this arc was going to be more of a superhero arc. It's just a shame that the kind of superhero book he's writing is one where he expects the audience to be pleased with a few explosions people punching each other and Batman showing up because that's kind of what DC does when the book's not doing so well is just chuck Batman in for a guest appearance and I guess it's a lot easier to do in this book because of the connection but that's kind of all this book's becoming and it's incomprehensible it's the plot it just jumps everywhere and it just feels like I don't know what it feels it's just like I said it feels like a just a superhero comic book but one which isn't thought out, is just kind of a few plot points loosely strung together and then just cameo appearances. And I don't know, I, I feel it's kind of making me like the last arc a bit more just because it was, although I thought it was a bit dragged on, it was at least different and it was interesting, but this just isn't. And I'm looking forward to this arc being over, hopefully getting back to something with a bit more meaning, I guess. So I agree, two out of five batterings. Right, so that's going to give Batwing number 11 a total of 2 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman and Robin number 11. I said sit down. You want to die? There's easier ways to kill yourself. Yeah, like yelling at the guy who's holding the AK-47. Batman and Robin number 11, written by Peter Tomasi with art by Patrick Gleason. The issue opens up with Jason Todd returning to his safe house in Gotham, where he's jumped by Damien, who proceeds to beat him up in a sword fight, and takes his mask as a souvenir. We then jump to the criminals we saw last issue, running around Gotham branding police and civilians with the Bat logos. The people are in panic and Batman is furious with the desecration of his symbol. Meanwhile, Terminus is reaching imminent decay, so he uses his remaining strength to get into a battle suit. The issue ends with Batman and Robin being attacked by Terminus as Gotham City burns around them. Right, Batman Robin number 11. Joe was pretty much right, there, there wasn't a whole lot that happened in the book. It was very, very quick, very fast-paced. And a lot of what happened can be summed up very quickly, and that's why the summary was so short. The beginning of this issue where you see the whole Damien going against Jason Todd and them fighting, I was a little lost because, so Jason Todd fights Damien, Damien fight, well, essentially it was Damien attacking Jason Todd, Jason Todd just letting it happen up until the end. 
It didn't make any sense to me as how it actually ended. I didn't understand that. It seemed as if Jason Todd was reaching for something, and somehow the next panel, Damien is driving away on a motorcycle with Red Hood's mask on the front of it. How was that the conclusion? I, I didn't understand that. I agree that it wasn't much of a conclusion. What seemed to be ha- happening via the art is basically, you know, he says, uh, you beat me, it wasn't a fair fight. And he says, I wasn't taught to fight fair. And then when Jason says, I wasn't too, he's reaching for another electric baton or whatever they're called behind him. And then that's when Damien's jumped through that air vent in the wall. You can see it hanging by its ah, hinges. Okay. But okay. I, I agree, it's not really much of a conclusion. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't really seem as if Damien beat him either. But anyway... The second half with the whole Terminus, I don't really understand where this is going. I mean, I I get what's going on. All of the characters that we saw in the beginning of the last issue that all have a grudge against Batman are working for Terminus and are slowly trying to brand everybody in Gotham and brand the city with the explosions and the buildings and things like that as this is Batman's city, everyone be afraid because this is Batman's city. Trying to prove a point that just because this is Batman's city doesn't mean Batman's a source of good. Because to them, at least, all of them feel as if Batman did them wrong in some way, shape, or form. I don't really understand where it's going to go, because quite honestly, I don't know. I I think the problem is that when you involve them burning the Bat emblem into people, and then you have buildings having giant Bat symbols burned into them, the problem that I have is it's just too big of a scale. I get that, you know, large things, you know, things can happen on a large scale. I understand that. But the problem is, when you blow up buildings and you leave a giant bat symbol, that's a pretty big thing. So to just sweep that under the rug and say, oh, well, I'm just going to fight this guy and once I beat this guy, that's the end of it. I don't need to worry about those bats burning inside the sides of the building. That's, I don't know. I have a problem just with it because it just seems as if it's too large of a scale. It's the same reason I don't really like reading Superman or something like that because, oh, well, how do you beat Superman? Well, if you're a powerful person and you're super strong, you pick Superman up, you throw him through a building to wear him out. Okay, what happens to the building? Who pays for the building to get fixed? Obviously, Wayne Enterprises will probably end up paying for a lot of the repairs, but how is it that this stuff just happens? I don't know. I guess it all just comes back to... It seems as if there's a story that could happen just from the sheer fact of all these odd things happening. You're in a building, a giant bat gets burned into it, what happens to the people inside the building, and then how does that happen? I don't know. I'm thinking too much into it. But it was very fast-paced. I thought the art was was great. I didn't have any issues with the art. My only problem was it just seemed like there wasn't a lot going on. It was just the same thing happening on multiple pages. So I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. I get and think it's a very interesting perspective that you have Dustin on this because I was watching it and thinking wow this is really is on an epic scale and I guess how maybe you expect it to be I mean Batman and Robin is a pretty high tier book but you maybe you'd expect it to be in you know like Batman written by Scott Snyder I thought that this was a fantastic issue I thought this was handled a bit better the, the battle between the Robins but like we said a bit earlier I don't think it was concluded very well but I think the main story with this Terminus thing and these people branding people with Batman because they have been branded by Batman, you know, through fighting him, I think it's a really interesting concept. And I just feel that the scale of this, and I thought the art was amazing in this issue, which I rarely say of Patrick Gleason, but just 
it's also the coloring, like all the really deep reds. And then that panel of the double page spread with the buildings exploding with the bat symbols in them. It really felt to me as if like this could be the Dark Knight Rises. It's just on that big of a scale and with everything supposed to be ending and things like that. It almost feels like these villains aren't doing this story justice. And I just feel that although you have a point about, you know, what happens to all these things, I mean, I'm hoping that it's going to be, you know, the people not mistrusting Batman, but there's going to be that, you know, issue of safety and things like that. And hopefully there'll be some consequences with all these hundreds of people, it seems like, branded with these bat logos. And I, I just felt that it was really intense and fast paced, but in an exciting way, it didn't feel like it was decompressed or anything. It, it felt like a lot was happening and it was just, you felt Batman's urgency in wanting to reclaim the city and reclaim the bat symbol almost because it's been misused. I, I thought it was fantastic and I, I can't go over that double page spread the buildings. I really do think that is a great page. And I mean, I, I get your points, Dustin. I just, I just feel that it's because of this amazing scale that this has that it was, I found it really intense and really exciting. I, I really love this issue. So I'll give it four and a half out of five batterings. I think it goes back to what you said. It just seems like these villains are too small scale for the epicness of what's actually happening. All right, so Batman Robin number 11 gets a total of three and a half out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batgirl number 11. What took you so long, Batgirl? Rush hour traffic, plus all the lights were against me. And you wouldn't have wanted me to speed, would you? Batgirl number 11, written by Gail Simone, art by... Ardian Saif. The issue starts off with essentially Nightfall introducing her henchmen slash partners in crime, including a guy called Catharsis, which is the chick with the wings, Bleak Michael, which is a guy who can secrete acid from his body, and Bonebreaker, who is the giant strongwoman. Basically, to make a long story short, Batgirl is propositioned by Nightfall to join them because they don't want any more innocent people dying. They want to basically annihilate the bad people and just kill them. They believe that they are good people by eliminating the bad people. Batgirl contemplates this for about a second, but then realizes what is she even thinking about, to which Nightfall tells her henchmen to kill Batgirl because she means nothing to them. After a giant fight ensues where Batgirl is pretty much going to get her rear end handed to her, we cut to Barbara's apartment where we see Alicia, who is being escorted home by James Gordon Jr., James Gordon Jr. refuses to take advantage of the fact that Alicia is drunk and actually gives her a present, which is a giant, long-haired Siamese cat. Back at the fight, Barbara Gordon is about to get stabbed by Nightfall when, out of nowhere, Detective McKenna shows up and tells them to let her go, and they run, and keep running. As they run away, Batgirl gets in the car with McKenna, and they drive to McKenna's house, we hear the story of what exactly happened to Sharice Carnes, who we assume at this point is the character of Nightfall. Turns out her parents were butchered, and it took at least three hours, according to the forensics. She watched it the entire time. Regardless of whether or not she did it herself or not, the evidence pointed to the fact that nobody else was in the building except for herself. So she went to Arkham Asylum for some reason. While she was in Arkham Asylum, there was a breakout that happened, and the guards were taken hostage or turned into playmates and basically killed. Sharice watched this the entire time for 48 hours, watched all of it happen. As she was watching this, it's basically how she became who she is now. 
McKenna offers Batgirl a beer, which was kind of odd, only to have McKenna say, well, show me some ID and I'll give you a beer. Batgirl then proceeds to give McKenna a bunch of weird deductions about why do you need three side-by-side state-of-the-art computers, how did you know where I was and I was in danger, how do you know who Nightfall is, how is it that you have pictures of yourself with a man, but you're the only person who lives here anymore, to which McKenna freaks out and says, who are you with, D.E.O., Medusa, who pays you, Batgirl, and aims a gun at her. The two of them decide to get into a fight. Eventually, McKenna reveals that her husband was a guard, and right before she became detective, she convinced one of the SWAT team members to let her go in to the hostage situation in Arkham Asylum because her husband was one of the guards inside. As she got in there, she paused, and her husband ended up getting shot, and because of that, that is the problem. As McKenna says this, she says, listen, she contacted me because she has a mole. She has a mole everywhere. Tons of cops, councilmen, judges, she has a mole, and she has a mole inside of your organization, and she's referring to the Bat family. And as she says this, we see outside Batwoman standing there telling somebody confirmed, they're both in the location you predicted, I'm going in. This leads, obviously, to Batwoman and Batgirl next issue. Alright, Batgirl number 11. Here's the thing, I I don't think this was a bad issue. I I mean, I think this was a very average issue. It's better than some of the previous Batgirl stuff we've seen. Actually, it's better than a lot of Batgirl stuff we've seen, because at least they're fleshing out some of these characters that we keep seeing again and again and again. I thought the James Gordon Jr. appearance was almost as if it was a cameo, but I'm wondering if the Siamese cat has something to do with Barbara so that James Gordon Jr. can screw with the mind of Barbara. I guess we'll have to wait and see with that. As far as the Nightfall characters, all the henchmen and Nightfall are, well, the henchmen themselves, we won't forget about these people in, you know, a couple months and it won't matter. The Nightfall character, if it is, in fact, this Charisse character and her whole idea is to eliminate these criminals because of the horrible things they can do, that's fine. But why would a girl who, you know, supposedly butchered her parents be sent to Arkham Asylum? with the crazy, murderous people. Why wouldn't she just get sent to a, a prison? She was 16 years old, they said, when her parents were murdered. So what convinced anybody to send her to Arkham Asylum? A 16-year-old girl who says she didn't kill her parents, they send to Arkham Asylum with some people who murder people for fun. I find a problem with that. I understand the reason of why Simone wrote it the way she did, so that way the Sharice character witnesses these horrible things that these criminals do, and then in turn is convinced that, you know, by eliminating the criminals, by killing them, it's making it so that innocent people don't have to die. That's fine. I don't really understand why they're tying this back to the first story arc with Kenna witnessing Batgirl pausing and not taking the shot at was that guy. See, the problem is, here's here's the point. We're not even a year into it. I can't remember that guy's name. I think his name was Mir, the first villain in the first story arc. Anyway, the art was fine. I did notice a couple of little editorial mistakes with the wording. They had their instead of they've in one of the paragraphs. It had something to do with a reference to the horror they've seen or something like that. The horror they've seen and the wording was incorrect. I don't. I'm one of those editorial freaks who make picks the small things, but I don't know. It wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. Two and a half out of five batterings. I agree. Pretty average issue. It was interesting seeing more of the Detective McKenna storyline and her, you know, suspicions of Batgirl and things like that and having more resolution in it or at least, you know, more story. Seeing more of James Gordon Jr. because we obviously haven't seen any of that in the last issue or a couple of issues or however many it was. 
it just again it's it's one of those things where it's just very average. It feels like more of the same with the villains and the the heroes and just you know how they come to be. So I'm a bit confused about this whole Batwoman if it's just her connections to the DEO or if they're trying to make her out as bad in this book or what's going on, but definitely not drawn as well as she is in Batwoman. But it's going to be interesting to see the next issue and how the two Bat females, I guess, get on. So I'm looking forward to the next issue for that. But other than that, it's, you know, just continues to just plod along, really. So two out of five Batarangs. All right, so Batgirl number 11 gets a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Detective Comics number 11. You mean you're going to feed those letters to the Bat computer? They're made out of noodles, easy to digest. Detective Comics number 11, written by Tony Daniel, with art by Julio Ferreira and Eduardo Pansica. Mr. Toxic is still subduing Batman with energy blasts, but in true 60s Batman fashion, Batman flips the switch of his prototype energy deflector and sends Mr. Toxic flying across the room. However, the effects of the radiation slow Batman's reaction time, but he still manages to smash Mr. Toxic's dome helmet, revealing another humada. Mr. Toxic explodes, as does the Hadron Collider. At this point, the building is being evacuated due to the radiation. Batman escapes by smashing through a window. After decontamination, Bruce goes back to Wayne Towers, where he gets a phone call from Professor Alan Smart, a scientist believed to be dead. Bruce also visits Dunhill Laboratories, the owners of the equipment that was stolen last issue. Opposite the laboratory is a payphone from which Alan Smart phoned Bruce, and Bruce sees Smart standing by it. Smart fills in Bruce about Marder's antics, some pseudo-fictional science about time travel and cloning. We then cut to Gotham City Morgue, where we see the imposter Batmen are all clones of Humada but two of the bodies dissolve and Mr. Toxic appears again. Mr. Toxic gives the Humada from the Hadron Collider a breathing apparatus so that he wouldn't be affected by the radiation. Still sceptical, Batman is in the Batcave experimenting with a radioactive residue that he's found in various places, until an experiment goes bad and an aggressive reaction drowns Batman in some form of liquid. To be continued. As for the backup, written by Tony Daniel with art by Seisman Gadransky, Two-Face opens fire on Sterano and Freakshow Tommy, killing both of them, although taking a hit in the process. Two-Face then walks over to Freak Show, kicks him over, and we see a total recall tumor-like person on Freak Show's chest who Two-Face also kills. Two-Face then goes back to the monks, where we find out they were originally hired to kill him, but healed him instead, and do so again for his bullet wounds. In a confrontation with the head monk, Two-Face flips his coin, shoots the monk, but just like in A New Hope, the monk pulls an Obi-Wan Kenobi and is nothing but robes when he falls to the ground. The end, and thank for it. Alright, so Detective Comics Summer 11. I'm going to start with the backup, just because Sizem Kadransky and Tony Daniel should never have been teamed up. I don't know whose idea it was. Don't get me wrong, I like Sizem Kadransky's art, but Tony Daniel's writing does not match his art style, and it is absolutely horrible. You cannot tell what's going on. It's extremely difficult to figure out what exactly is going on because there is so many words and not enough going on in the panels. It's almost as if Tony Daniel's trying to tell a main story in the amount of pages that you would be telling in a backup, and Kodransky is trying his best to interpret the three panels worth of dialogue in one panel, which doesn't help. Perfect example at the very end when Two-Face shoots the monk person, he shoots him, he says, oh, it's your lucky day, and then pulls the trigger, and the guy's gone in the next one, and we see a gunshot hole in the fabric the next time. What happened? Did the monk poof, 
pull some magic trick and decide to transport across to the other side of the world. No idea. No idea what happened because at that point in the story, that was the only time we didn't really understand what was going on because there wasn't a lot of dialogue. And the art was the one that took the lead on that. It was horrible. I mean, you know, the Two-Face backup that was back in, I want to say, it was Batman Streets of Gotham. There's a Two-Face backup in the back of that book for a couple issues. That was also horrible. And honestly, it's proving that, you know, these writers don't really know what to do with Two-Face other than just to have him shoot people and flip his coin. Which, last time I checked, we weren't living in 1995 and the movie of the year wasn't Batman Forever. Tommy Lee Jones wasn't playing Two-Face because that's essentially all that happened in Batman Forever. So someone really should give somebody who's writing these Two-Face stories, regardless of who it is, some knowledge as to who Two-Face has become over the last couple of years instead of, oh, he's this guy who's just flipping the coin and shooting the crap out of people. Because honestly, Two-Face has become a lot more than that. That set aside, let's go to the main story. Okay, Hugh Martyr, who we were introduced to way back, I believe it was issue one, issue two and he was asking Wayne for some funding so that he could do some kind of experiment or whatever. Now we know what the experiment was. So he's cloning himself and his clone is now Mr. Toxic. He has built this machine to do a bunch of scientific mumbo jumbo. That means absolutely nothing to me as the reader other than Tony Daniels trying to prove that he can do sci-fi. Yeah. This completely fell flat. And then, oh yeah, by the way, so we end the issue with Batman getting engulfed with some kind of liquid that, by the way, was just a piece of something. And then he added some liquid to it and turned into this giant blob that is now encapsulated. <sighs> October cannot come soon enough. One out of five bad ranks. I guess I'll also start with the backup, just for consistency. I thought that of all the backups, this was the best one, but it was still awful. I feel that it was probably the best one because there was, I think, less dialogue in it. Probably because it was mostly Two-Face shooting people. But I did think the art was particularly spectacular in the back of this issue. So I really hope that Kodransky gets more work in the Batman universe because I really do love his art style. I thought it, there were some panels in this issue that I thought really worked well. And it would be a shame if he just stopped doing comics or stopped doing Batman. As for the main story, this was insane. It felt like Tony Daniel watched something on like the science channel on TV and then just took notes but kind of confused himself and then just, I don't know, went on Wikipedia and started like pulling random words and putting them together about time travel and cloning and loads of other just bizarre things which Batman apparently just knows about and it really wasn't a good issue. I think I enjoyed the last one. I enjoyed previous issues i thought that tony den was getting better this one definitely dropped in quality the two artists i think i enjoyed one of them but i couldn't tell you which one it was and there were varying styles in the same issue and it seemed that it was kind of someone took one page and then someone took another it kind of jumped around both story-wise and artistically there was no real connection It just kind of went from this to that to something else to back to there and I'll give it two out of five batteries. All right, so Detective Comics number 11 gets a total of one and a half out of five batteries. Let's move into our final book, Batman number 11. What are you planning to do? Talk me to death? Actually. I thought I'd beat you to death. 
Batman number 11, written by Scott Snyder, art by Greg Pulo, the finale of The Court of Owls. The issue starts off with Lincoln March in the owl costume, facing off against Bruce Wayne in the Batsuit, obviously. The two are fighting back and forth, exchanging words. Basically, Lincoln March is trying to prove that he is Bruce's brother the entire time they're battling. The gist of their conversation, basically, is that Lincoln March feels betrayed by his own brother because his brother never came to get him after his parents were murdered. It's revealed that Lincoln March can fly as when he's in his owl costume and actually takes Bruce Wayne via a grappling hook and throws him through the side of a major skyscraper. So basically, Bruce Wayne is getting the crap beat out of him. Lincoln March then proceeds to tell him that the entire time he was locked in Willowwood, he kept expecting his parents to come and get him. He kept expecting Bruce to come and get him once he found out that his parents were killed. But what happened, Bruce actually left and disappeared for a long period of time while he was traveling the city. So what happened was Thomas Wayne, as he calls himself, decided that at this point it was left so that he could make his debut as the other Wayne's son and take Gotham back as the way it was. The entire time, the Court of Owls was putting thoughts into his head. Then Lincoln March, Thomas Wayne, Owlman, whatever you'd like to call him, takes Bruce up to an airplane and is actually releases him inside of a jet turbine engine. And turns out Batman put a device on the back of Owlman so that he would explode. Batman ends up being able to get out of the jet turbine but ends up falling towards Gotham City at a freefall. Ends up using a high-velocity bat rope to swing off of the brand new building that he was building inside of the crime area of Gotham. And as he gets there, it turns out, here's Lincoln March Owlman, and he is pretty pissed, and he says, well, you know, it's great that you didn't die there, because now you can die in the rubble of this building that you decided to use as your revitalization for your little Gotham initiative. So he starts squirting these little devices that look very similar to the goo bombs that we saw in The Dark Knight. The Explosion starts, Batman runs off and dives through an elevator shaft and travels all the way to the bottom as the entire building falls. We then cut to Wayne Manor, where Bruce is sitting in a wheelchair, all bandaged up, remodeling the building that just was collapsed, and this is kind of like the epilogue of the Court of Owls. Dick Grayson shows up and they proceed to explain how everything worked out. Bruce explains that the Court of Owls is much bigger than he ever would have thought, and the money and the resources that they have, it's a lot bigger than anybody would have anticipated. And they then say that all the captured towns are in a cryo prison beneath Blackgate Penitentiary. Dick Grayson proceeds to, at some point, tell Bruce that he is actually uh, planning on punching Bruce Wayne at some point, but he's going to withhold that for now. Dick also asks, you know, how exactly do you know for sure that he wasn't your actual brother? Bruce proceeds to say that he did know that his mother was pregnant when he was three years old and that they were in a car accident, that the child was born premature and had severe neurological damage, but the boy didn't even last for a single night. He died that same night. And there was records that suggested that he died 12 hours later. It never actually said that it was his son or his, his brother, but in fact, that is where the information came from. So then Dick says, well, how could this guy be convinced that he was your brother? To which Bruce replies, well, they could have falsified a tons of different things. My mother did visit all of her cherries, including Willowwood, so Lincoln March could have known about the pin that she wore. In addition to that, the Court of Owls could have just basically planted all of these ideas into Lincoln March's head. 
Then what ends up happening is Bruce says, listen, I understand that it's hard finding out that you were meant to be a Talon, and you may think that it was me who saved you from being a Talon, but it wasn't. It wasn't me. You would have never become a Talon regardless because you would have never been able to be the people that these Talons were ever. Dick says, well, at this point, I don't know that I'm going to be able to punch you, but I guess I'll have to save it for a different day. Then Wayne says that he's going to build the tower even taller than it was before, and then it pretty much all ends with Batman admitting that Gotham is not Batman, and it isn't the Owls. Gotham is all of us, and Batman just basically ends it with he'll be watching Gotham City always. Then we get to the backup, and in the backup, kind of the epilogue of the Jarvis Pennyworth story, where Jarvis is in a building that's being burnt, and he's writing a letter to his son, and he explains that Martha Wayne was injured in a car accident that the owls plotted, and when they plotted this, because the son died, they planted a willow tree so that the willow tree would look over all of the Wayne Cemetery for generations to come. At this point, Thomas Wayne decided that at that point, the family needed to get out of the country for the summer, and then while they were out of the country, Jarvis Pennyworth was still at Wayne Manor, and the Court of Owls decided to tell him, listen, you might not have done what we said, but we still got what we were after. The school is not going to happen, and even killed a little Wayne. Then they proceed to tell him that you have become an enemy of us, and now you need to watch out for us, because we could even go after your own family, your own son Alfred. He kind of flips out, and then we cut to him in this burning building, and the Talon is after Jarvis Pennyworth. The letter is left for Alfred. We assume it got burnt up in the thing, but essentially Jarvis explains to his son that he has done numerous things that, you know, does not serve justice to Alfred, and he's really sorry for them, and he asks for forgiveness, and he just says, please stay away from Wayne Manor. If anything, it should keep you from any harm becoming of you. Back in the present day, we see Alfred leaving some flowers on Jarvis Pennyworth's gravestone, and then we see the battered Bruce talking to Alfred, and Alfred saying, I don't need to know anything about my family. I don't need to know whether or not he was killed by the Court of Owls, because it didn't matter. I really wasn't on good terms with my father, and everything that I need to know about my father, I already know. I don't need to know anything. So the entire thing is we find out that Alfred is in turn, unaware of the fact that his father actually cared about him very, very much, all because that letter burned. And Alfred essentially says, you know, listen, I understand that you're going to find out what you want to know, but for now, the specters of these things lost kin deserve to rest undisturbed as a owl flies in the background. That is Batman number 11. Alright, again, I'm going to start with the backup feature. Essentially, I think the backup feature confirms the fact that there's no way that this person, Lincoln March, Thomas Wayne, Owlman, whatever you want to call him, no way does it confirm that that was actually Bruce's brother. In anything, it actually says that it's not, and it was just a ploy. Now, given it was a really good ploy, because it had a lot of people going in the last issue where, oh my god, this is Bruce Wayne's brother. But at the same point, it just really was this giant plot by the Court of Owls. The fact that the brother never lived and he died, as stated by the hospital records, as stated by the backup feature, proves that most likely this was not Bruce Wayne's brother, and it does leave the possibility for this character to come back just for the sheer fact that no bodies were found in the wreckage in the main story, and the fact that he has the regenerative powers so he could live despite the fact that he was buried in the rubble. 
I thought this was, again, a really good ending to the overall story arc. It was really a giant epilogue to everything that's happened. It explains and lays out exactly how things are going to go from here. You know, it lays out all of the interesting facts. It answers all the questions that we could have had from anything that derived from this Corval story. But the only thing is, the thing that happened in the last issue with the reveal that, oh, this guy, Lincoln March, is actually Bruce Wayne's brother, that all along was like the big reveal. This was the epilogue. And I'm not saying that it was a bad issue, but it was definitely not as good as the last issue as far as reveals go. It wraps everything up nicely covers everything, and it completes everything in a timely manner, but at the same point, it was just not as like epic as the last one, which is what we've seen from Scott Snyder in the past with you know his last run on Detective Comics. The issues leading up to the finale were so much bigger than the actual last issue because the last issue is like this epilogue. So, that being said, we could probably expect in the Joker storyline, second to last issue of the story arc, the big huge thing happen, and then the epilogue in the final one, because that just seems as if that's the way it's going. I thought the art was great. The sticky bombs were the only thing that I was kind of questioning, was because that was something that we saw in The Dark Knight. I'm not saying Capullo stole it from The Dark Knight, but it just was a little odd that there was these bombs that was sticky bomb thing that we saw in The Dark Knight. Overall, I mean, it answered all of our questions. There's no questions we have left unanswered, other than, you know, it leaves the opportunity for this Thomas Wayne slash Lincoln March slash Owlman character to pop up in the future if they ever decide to you know, pull him up. And I doubt Scott Snyder will ever pull him back, but it just leaves that opportunity. He did the same exact thing with James Gordon Jr. where he left the opportunity for the character to pop up later on. So overall, I think this was a good issue. Wrapped up everything up well. I thought the art was, was really good. I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. I just genuinely feel that this issue would be so much better without the backup. And that's because I felt that the issue was good, but it was so much dialogue. And to be honest, it was really interesting, so I didn't mind. But the majority of the issue was just Thomas Wayne or, you know, whoever's Lincoln March dragging Bruce around by a grapple hook and just talking at him, you know, not even to him. There was no conversation. It was just him kind of telling Bruce all this stuff. And then we'd have like a page of action where Bruce tries to get the upper hand and then, you know, Lincoln March would come back and be even stronger and try and take him down again. But it was really interesting. And I felt that the issue really became really good during that last scene with Dick. And I was reading it as there was all this information about how the brother died, but then there was these other things and how that could have been used as a ploy to make this character think he was Thomas Wayne Jr., but at the same time, I felt that it really did just leave it open so that you just didn't know for sure. And I really liked that because you remember last issue, I was saying how at first I was really hated the idea and then I accepted it because of the history of it. And I just really liked the idea that it was left completely open and you weren't sure, you know, if it was the brother or if it was just a psychotic man or, you know, being convinced otherwise. So I liked that aspect. And then in the backup, that was taken away by a lot more evidence going towards Thomas Wayne Jr. had died, and I didn't like that closure so much. It was a bit like at the end of the detective one, where you see the baby with the spaced-out eyes, implying that James Gordon had infected a whole generation of Gotham with his medication. And, you know, if it was that, and then 
there was another page afterwards or like in a backup where you see in the future and everyone's fine. It would just completely take away from that. So I felt it was a bit like that. And I liked the fact that Bruce would always struggle trying to know if it was his brother or not and how to deal with that. So I guess it wouldn't change anything for Bruce, but just as a reader, I feel that it's good to be in Bruce's mindset a lot of the time. So I didn't like the backup so much just because of what it added to the story, which I think took away from it. But I did feel it was a very strong issue. Great art. I'll give it four out of five batterings. All right. So Batman number 11 gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Let's go over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. to another episode of Fat Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we are reviewing Batman Legacy. This was a multi-title crossover. It was written by Alan Grant, Doug Monach, and Chuck Dixon, and features art by Dave Taylor, Jim Apro, Graham Nolan, Jim Ballant, and Bob Smith, Staz Johnson, and Scott Hanna. Legacy ran from August 1996 to October 1996, and it ties in with Bane of the Demon, Contagion, and Catwoman, Prelude to Legacy, which we reviewed in the last episode. This is part of sort of a big, massive arc that's really run through the year and is the culmination in the series. This collects Shadow of the Bat, 53 and 54, Batman, 533 and 534, Detective Comics 700, 701, and 702, Catwoman 36, and Robin 32 and 33. According to Comic Cron, Detective was number 7 in the chart, Batman 8th, Robin 21st, Catwoman 23rd, and Shadow of the Bat was 16th over the period that it ran. Whilst they did drop a little bit the following month, it wasn't a drastic fall, and sales were very strong over the crossover and can genuinely be rated as actually quite a big success for DC. So, let's get into the final bit of the Batman Legacy series, and find out what happens in this culmination of what so far has been a really excellent year for comics. Hey, I'm pleased you remember me, Mr. Wayne. 
We open with Huntress torturing a criminal to find out where a gang of drug runners are. Meanwhile, Robin receives the shocking news that the virus, Ebola Gulf, is not cured in him. Rather, it's dormant and may come back at any second. For more information on this, see Contagion. Bruce contacts Asriel, who explains the complete history of the Plague Wheel. He gives Batman the location of it. So he, Robin and Nightwing travel to the Sudanese desert to try and track it down, whilst the government proposed setting up camps to herd those who were infected in to them to prevent the virus spreading if it comes back. Huntress, meanwhile, takes down the drug gang with Robin's help, who explains that they are leaving and Batman has put her in charge whilst they are away. While Batman and the others travel to the entrance of the cavern holding the plague wheel, Batman, Nightwing and Robin enter the cavern and on the bottom of jars found on a table discover a map through the maze to the plague wheel. They make their way through it, discovering a camp at the entrance and as they sneak through, they're discovered and we find that running the camp is none other than Ra's al Ghul. He orders them killed and returns to the Wheel of Plagues. Of course our heroes are rather hard to kill and follow Ra's into the pit. Nightwing is separated from Batman and Robin and he tries to take on Ra's on his own. However, he is easily outmatched and is only saved by Batman. However, despite Batman's best efforts, Raz escapes and leaves in a helicopter. As they watch it leave, Ubu, Raz's assistant, reveals himself to be none other than Bane. Meanwhile, Catwoman is trapped in a room which has started to flood after Raz decided to destroy the wheel rather than allow Batman to have it. Catwoman manages to pick the lock and escape, freeing Umberto, but leaves Hellhound to his fate. See the last issue for more on the events leading up to this. However, she is forced to release him when it becomes clear that they can't open a door without his help. At the same time, Alfred, Robin and Nightwing fly back to Syad, whilst Batman goes to find a ship called the Shrike. Hellhound, whilst this is happening, attacks Catwoman, enraging her by taunting her over what her sensei would think of her if he could see her now. She wins, and they set off across the desert. We cut to Batman, Nightwing and Robin, who stand over a city, waiting for Aragal to make contact over the ship called the Shrike. She says, using the helicopter that Raz escaped in, they could have only gotten to Port Mombasa in Said, where he bought groups of tickets to Paris, Edinburgh and Gotham. Batman orders Robin and Nightwing to Paris whilst he goes to Edinburgh. Meanwhile, on his boat, the Collector, again see the last episode, is waiting for Hellhound and Catwoman to report in. Whilst he's waiting, however, he's arrested for attacking a woman, which turns out to be Catwoman in disguise. Nightwing and Robin arrive in Paris and begin to look for Raz and his group sent to spread the disease. Tim leaves Dick stuck in traffic and begins to explore the city on his own, where he runs into Shen Chi, who he encountered last time he came to Paris. They fight and Tim wins easily and continues to explore Paris. With no luck in narrowing down their potential targets, Robin approaches Henry Ducard to help him with the search. He agrees and suggests looking in the gutter for a target. 
Meanwhile, Nightwing discovers that the Shrike is a phantom ship and can't be traced. So with no leads, they decide to lead Ranz's gang into a trap using a bat signal. They allow one to escape, however, who leads them straight to the biological weapon, with the Louvre being the centre. Robin discovers they also plan to steal paintings as well. Tim takes them on, but becomes outnumbered until Henry Ducard arrives, killing the gang, to Robin's disgust. With the threat eliminated, they head back to Gotham. Meanwhile, Bruce is scouting a castle in Edinburgh, which has received some rare stones from the Sudan. He discovers a large Scottish man has also expressed interest in the stones. As Batman waits, the castle is broken into by a group dressed as pigs. However, it emerges that these aren't the terrorists Batman is looking for. Rather, they are trying to reclaim the stone for their ancestors. But whilst they explain this, Raz's men arrive and manage to gain the vials of virus. Bruce gives chase, eventually catching one of the members, who kills himself before he can be questioned. From one of the picks, Batman learns that the man has an accomplice on a bike, which has now fled. Bruce deduces that he aims for Salisbury Crags to allow him to poison the entire city. Batman corners the man and stops him dropping the poison. However, it is discovered that another plane ticket was bought, this time to Calcutta. In Calcutta, Batman is told by Oracle to travel to the Temple of Kali, where someone will have more information. Whilst waiting, he is approached by a small child who offers to help, but Batman rejects it. It turns out his contact is Lady Shiva, who tells him that Rana's gang planned to meet on a bridge at midnight. They discover that the virus has been placed onto the statues that are being placed into the river for a festival. Batman finds the wax container inside one of the statues, just in time to prevent the virus from leaking out and flooding down the river. Bruce returns to Gotham and he, Robin, Huntress and Nightwing split up to scout different possible targets, including a stadium and a casino. However, it turns out to be the Aventine, a new casino, where Batman is, that's the target. Bruce easily dispatches the guard, but a problem arises when he discovers Bane is in the Aventine as well. Bane attacks Batman and they fight, however Bruce only delays Bane so he can detonate a gas line to destroy the virus. Whilst the virus is destroyed in the explosion, Bane survives and goes after Batman. They continue to fight and Bane gains the upper hand. Bane gets the upper hand and Bruce flashes back to his childhood. He uses the rage to beat Bane, knocking him out. However, a tidal surge takes Bane out to sea and Batman loses him. Meanwhile, Oracle has found the Shrike and she tasks Robin, Nightwing and Huntress with getting on board to get Raz's files. However, they are soon discovered and whilst Nightwing and Huntress deal with guards, Robin goes to search for the database. With Oracle's guide, he finds the computer room and sets up a line so that she can access the system. As that is happening, Nightwing and Huntress are attacked by Talia and Raz. However, Nightwing and Huntress manage to escape, wounding Raz in the process. Despite the League's attempts, Robin prevents them from stopping the upload, and Oracle gets the files, allowing her to engineer a cure. Meanwhile, Raz's men have surrounded Nightwing and Huntress, who at the last second are rescued by Robin before the boat explodes. 
Bullock and Montoya are cleaning up the mess from the Aventine, whilst Batman and Robin patrol to maintain order as people get the vaccine for the clench. The survivors of the Aventine and the yacht explosion are questioned but give little away, whilst Bruce Wayne appears in an attempt to help with the situation in the hospitals. During his visit, he discovers that there are a large number of unburied bodies and offers as much help as possible. Whilst this is happening, a group from the League of Assassins try to free the survivors held in the prison. However, the police hold them off and prevent them from being taken. At the same time, Bruce and Tim in the cave wonder about the numbers of dead and how they could have handled the situation better. However, they cheer up with Alfred reminding them that it could have been a lot worse if they hadn't been there. And so that ends Batman Legacy. I absolutely loved this series. It's brilliant. There is great writing throughout, uh, no matter who is writing the issues. I enjoyed especially um, Tim facing the virus coming back and the potential for him not being cured and once again facing the possibility that he might die. And this was handled really, really well. There were flashbacks and Tim was very quiet and spent a lot of time considering what he'd miss and what he'd lose. There are points where he sort of gives up and wonders whether there's any point to what he's doing, which is completely a natural reaction for anyone who's ever been faced with the possibility of their death. I felt the Bane and the Batman fight was incredibly well written and incredibly well drawn as well. I really felt the hatred that Bane had for Batman, just feel the hatred coming off him and this was certainly a really really dramatic fight probably one of the best ones that I've ever seen between the two characters even I would argue better than Nightfall which is a bit controversial but I'm going to stick by that in the same way that I like Tony Daniels and that probably makes my opinion completely invalid I felt the art was stunning, especially the issue where Batman goes to Edinburgh. I felt the art in that was particularly brilliant. It really captures Edinburgh's feel, and it's this really nice gothic style, and it's mixed in with the new as well, which gave it kind of almost a, a Gotham feel to it, which I felt was really, really nice. But all the way through, the art was fantastic, and I can't point out anybody who did a bad job, which is always a good thing. Even when the art styles were completely different, I didn't find myself noticing. I was just so wrapped up in the story. I felt it was nice as well that we saw it was the whole team. Everyone acted and had their own part. It wasn't just Batman doing everything, and everyone else tagging along and feeling a bit useless, or just Batman and Robin doing it, and nobody else. It was a complete team effort, and I really, really enjoyed that. And I really liked the fact that you could see everyone was pulling their weight, and everybody had their own set of skills that, that brought everything together, and they worked to get to solve a problem that was genuinely bigger than themselves. If it was just Batman, I think I would struggle to believe this storyline entirely but because it's all of them 
it makes it seem so much more believable. I would say that this is a must-own series. If you can find it, uh, I would get it. It's a little bit expensive on Amazon, I must admit. It's £75, and on, on the American Amazon, it's $80, which is quite a lot. But if you can find it in a second-hand bookshop, or you can order it online, I would highly recommend getting this. This is definitely one of my must-own uh, issues. So that was our review of Batman Legacy. If you've got any opinions or you want to share your review, do feel free to log on to the forums and go to the Bat Books for Beginners page and leave your review there. Bane of Demon 22 did that and it was very, very much appreciated. So thank you very much for doing that. Please do go on there and tell me what you like, what you don't like. Give me any suggestions, let me know what you think of it, and I will try and reply to every single one. I'll get a bit of a discussion going. So, that's it. Next week, we'll be reviewing Bane. And now, I'm going to hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Bye-bye for now. So that was Bat Books for Beginners. As far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we'll be covering Batman Beyond Unlimited number 6, Batwoman number 11, Birds of Prey number 11, Catwoman number 11, Nightwing number 11, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 11, Batman Incorporated number 3, and Batman the Dark Knight number 11. So a lot of books next episode, but this episode, not as many books, but tons of news. So we'll probably see a little bit less news over the next couple of weeks just because of everything having to do with Comic-Con and all of that. So that being said, that is the end of this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website to check out all of the daily news related to not only the comics, but also everything else related to the Batman universe, including the release of The Dark Knight Rises, which as you're listening to this, you probably have already seen it once, twice, maybe three times. If you've seen it three times by the time you listen to this podcast, Send us an email because props to you. <laughs> um, in addition to that, we are running a contest on the website for our UK fans and US fans. Details are under the general editorial section of the website. If you are from the US, you have the opportunity to win a Batman and Psychology book from Wiley Publishing. And if you're from the UK, you have the chance to win a 30-pound voucher to All Fancy Dress, which is a custom site online that has a number of different Batman items as well as some other items. All the details are online. There's actually three different ways you can enter in. You can post on our Facebook page. You can tweet a specific phrase that's on the posting. Or you can actually email us at a specific email address. All the details are under the TBU Summer Contest under the general editorial section. All the details as far as how you can actually enter is there. In addition to that, be sure to check us out on Stitcher for your smartphones. Basically, all of our podcasts are available on Stitcher. The details are on the website for that as well. You can join the forums. If you do, be sure to send us an email letting us know that you need your account activated. I want to send a big thank you to anybody who's emailed us with any compliments about the show. Those are always greatly appreciated, as well as any comments on Twitter, our Facebook page, our YouTube page or even reviews on iTunes, they're always greatly appreciated. In addition to that, you can also look forward to a couple of things that we're going to be doing in the next couple months. We're going to be having uh, two specials coming out in August. 
So the first special is related to The Dark Knight Rises and our feedback after we've seen it. But the other one that I know a lot of people who listen to this one are looking forward to is our 2012 TBU OGN special, which is going to cover all the original graphic novels that have been published by DC Comics related to the Batman universe. This would include Batman Noel, Batman Death by Design, Batman Earth One, and the Sam Keith book that came out last June that's really got brushed under the rug real quickly. But all of those books will be covered, and it'll be a nice long special dedicated to all the graphic novels since graphic novels are so large and take up a lot of time to talk about on the actual podcast. So you can look forward to those two specials. We're in the process of trying to schedule a number of interviews with comic creators so we can close out the last half with obviously more interviews than we had in the first half since we didn't have any comic creators. We're in the process of trying to do that. And there's always a number of other things we're trying to do on the website, so just be sure to check out the website, thebatmanuniverse.net. And you can always email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns related to anything related to Batman. That's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Joe. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. seems like, despite the fact there's only two of us, I feel more worn out because I feel like we talked more individually. I, I get to about this <laughs> Anyway, obviously that'll get edited out, but uh, we can non-discreetly throw that in the outtakes as what book is it that he doesn't get to about?